Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the vintage case of the baby killer, Erna Janoshek. Well, welcome back, everybody. It has been a pretty good last couple of weeks, I would yes. say. Yeah. Got a lot done. It's heating up, as I'm sure it's heating up for everyone. Hope you're staying hydrated and cool in whatever way you can. Yeah, Scott and I have been doing a lot of guest interviews on other podcasts, so we will let you guys know what those are through social media. Also, you can always go to our website, and I update that pretty frequently, but we have a page that is just where you can find other interviews we've done over the years, so you can always look there too. Well, so our last episode was episode 150. Can you believe it? A couple milestones, 150... 50 yeah. live streams. What yeah. is happening? But that was our episode, our big episode on domestic terrorism. So mm. it has overlapped with a few other episodes we've done. We also, in one of our live streams, maybe last year, I think, talked about domestic violence extremists and the different typologies there. So we decided to flush that out to a bigger episode, dive into some of the research and do some interesting case studies, of course, covering the biggie, the Oklahoma City bombing. So please go back and give that a listen if you have not already ready. And also just, it's an important one. It's probably one of our more lengthy episodes in the last mm -hmm. year or so, because there is just so much salient and current material that sort of everybody needs to be aware of. And we do refer back to those previous episodes, as well as some new research that's come out, of course, because we always want to stay on top of that. So without further ado, let's jump into today's topic, Erna Janoshek. So Erna, E-R-N-A, Erna Janoshek, was a 17-year-old nanny, and she coldly took revenge on the perceived slights of her employers by brutally murdering their youngest child. In a cold and vengeful rage, Erna killed one of the children she was in charge of, and then went on to write a detailed outline of what led her to the crime and how she committed it. With the help of newspaper articles and the narrative of the killer herself, we're going to share with you today the mental processes that led Erna to kill and then to justify the act through a very detached and callous lens. So as you've already mentioned, trigger warning here, we're going to be talking about violence against and the murder of children in today's episode. So Edward Janoshek, a German immigrant to the U.S., married Marie Worthy, an immigrant from England in 1905 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Great their first child was born in Utah the same year. Edward was listed in the U.S. federal census list as a magazine salesman, but at this time, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he received his missionary calling and he moved his young family to Los Angeles. Now, Edward had also served as a missionary to Sudan and to Mexico. The family moved to these various locations and then around locations in the West Coast, with Marie taking various positions as a teacher wherever the family landed. On April 2nd, 1911, while living in Watts, California, Edward and Marie gave birth to their second daughter, Ernestine Erna Maisie Janoshek. Edward and Marie valued education highly and not just academic success, but also proficiency in all the literary arts. Aside from this, however, Edward was also rigorously religious with reports that he consistently veered right on the tip of fanaticism. At one point, he was reported to have abandoned his family in favor of church responsibilities and religious concerns, serving as an editor for the pro-polygamy publication entitled The New New Era, a periodical dedicated to the interest of Zion and her cause. And as with many fanaticals, his beliefs grew more radical outside of the Mormons' church's strong attempts to mainstream themselves for societal acceptance and he was officially excommunicated in 1930. Wow. So following his excommunication, it appears that Edward slipped into some mental illness essentially roaming the Western United States. And Marie, as a single mother now of two girls, made do with this challenging situation and raised her daughters well, guiding them to excel in academics throughout their elementary and junior high school educations. And Marie emphasized education and hard work as the only way out of a financial distressful situation with the hopes that her daughters would be able to build solid careers and lead stable lives. Marie had learned the hard way that relying on a spouse didn't always work out as planned. Grace excelled in school, graduated, and was accepted to the University of California, Berkeley in 1923. What a 
cool feat. I mean, for a young lady at that time, amazing growing up in a household, you know, with just her mom and, and her sister. Erna was no slouch either, though. She was reported to be not only beautiful, but articulate and clearly inherited her father's talent for turning a phrase. She earned the praise of her teachers and was socially adept with her peers while attending university high school here in Los Angeles. However, there came a drastic change in her behavior that was noticed pretty much by all of those around her during the spring of 1928, which would have been around the age of 17 for Erna. So Erna was a young woman who was always known for her outgoing and vibrant personality. And then it seemed like overnight, she became suddenly remote, isolated, disengaged, and was described as her peers as grim. When questioned by her mother and teachers, Erna contended that there was nothing wrong. There had been no significant event that had pushed her into this brooding teenager phase. She just asserted that for now, she preferred her own company over her previous social butterfly activities. And maybe she had a point. 17 is not the easiest age to manage, no matter what generation you're living in. And for almost any other teenager, that would have been fine. But tragically for everyone, this was not the case for Erna. For Erna, this was a 180 degree change in presentation, and it was a red flag of warning for imminent and serious future behaviors. And in this case, these symptoms, this presentation, these behaviors warned of an impending and dangerous descent into mental illness. So somewhat rebelling against the academic expectations of her mother and the successes of her sister, Erna sought work outside of the home. While inexperienced in any skilled labor, Erna had been taught well by her mother how to manage a household. And while perusing a local newspaper, she answered an ad for a live-in housekeeper and nanny. Her mother, somewhat reluctant to let her go out on her own in a live-in position, finally relented and hoped that it would improve her spirits as well as bring some extra money into their household. Erna was hired by Dr. Eric Lillian Krantz and his wife, Thais Scott. Dr. Lillian Krantz was a third generation medical doctor and Thais was known to be a well-regarded and connected socialite. At first glance, the situation appeared to be a great opportunity of transition for Erna. She had private sleeping quarters where she could rest after caring for the children. And these children were a one-year-old girl called Thais Diana after her mother. And then there was three-year-old Francora. While reported as generally well-behaved children, there were reports that the toddler Francora could do what three-year-olds do best, give their caregivers a real run for their money. And it was soon apparent that Erna would be spared none of this stress. So as the days went by, Erna came to the very grim realization of just how much energy it took to wrangle two children and manage the scullery work of a large home. It appears that it didn't help that Mrs. Lillian Krantz was not able to help mitigate Erna's stress. She could be sharp-tongued and sarcastic about Erna's housekeeping abilities and may even have been a little bit jealous about how quickly the children took to Erna. Regardless, Erna's patience and mental stability started to crack a bit around the edges. It's a tough situation. You think It's a very tough situation. <laughs> for a, a young woman. Yeah. I mean, you think of this this person that you hire to essentially raise your children and then you're going to be resentful that they're building a better bond with them. It's interesting. Well, you think about the difference or not necessarily, well, the difference in the age between Erna and her employer. So yes. Erna is still a child right. who can relate to how to talk to little kids if you want to. I mean, some teenagers are like, I don't want to have anything to do with mm -hmm. that. But most teenagers will like sort of really get into one-to-one -one play with kids and understand in a way that parents just don't have time for anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. probably at that time, especially with the expectations of women. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Interesting situation here. So we have Erna dealing with Mrs. Lillian Krantz's generous complaints about her work. And it didn't help that being a 17-year-old living nanny and a cleaning person, Erna occasionally broke items in the home. Like you said, she's a child herself. This isn't like she's been doing this for years. So on top of all of this, little Francora, according to Erna's later reports, engaged in what we as clinicians might call oppositional behaviors. And while this isn't unusual in children, it can be distressing in adults as they watch the toddler's essentially learn some of these more brutal maneuvers of emotional triangulation and manipulation. You're like, what is going on? And they're really good at it. That's they what they're are. doing is they're, they're individuating, learning to be their own little persons. And that means how do I manipulate mommy, daddy, and whatever adult is around me to get what I want. Yeah, right. They're, they're just little ids in, in a very simple world of like, yes. okay, this behavior equals this thing that I want. 
So while Francora would throw tantrums with Erna, she would also quickly recompensate. But when Miss Lillian Krantz was present, little Francora would allegedly turn on the dramatics, wailing, crying in her mother's arms, all like while giving Erna like this side eye, stink eye, right. <laughs> you know, kind of breaking characters. I imagine it in my head. And Erna, with the limited life experience she had as well, had some quickly emerging emotional issues. And really there began to seem like like there was this sense of resentment building toward her situation and towards her employer. So as we indicated earlier, all of this comes to bear actually pretty quickly with just this huge amount of responsibilities on this previous just high school student. And within just a couple of weeks, the pressures on Erna really impacted her fragile stability of which no one was really aware. There's also a surprise factor coming up that we'll talk about later that People had no idea at the time that it would impact Erna's behavior, but it really did. So one night, it all kind of comes together when the Lillian Krantzes had Mrs. Lillian Krantz's parents into their home for dinner. So the in-laws stayed at least until 830 that night. And the full cleanup responsibilities, of course, of that dinner party, which were meant to impress. So they pulled out all the stops. All the cleanup falls on Erna which is understandable. That's like what you signed up for. Maybe you didn't expect it, but that's what you signed up for. So despite having what she later reported as a massive headache, Erna began this Herculean attempt of cleaning up the dining room and the kitchen. And what she reports in her later journal writings is that Mrs. Lillian Krantz had really poor attention to details in her own culinary exploits. And she left Erna with a real challenge. Not only did she accidentally cut her finger while washing the dishes, but Erna was working up a huge sweat in the hot kitchen on that summer night, viciously and vainly scrubbing at these burned berries that had been basically poured all over the surface of the cooktop. Mrs. Lillian Krantz and her first attempt at making fruit preserves had earlier in the day left a huge pot of berries to boil over. It was not well planned, particularly with guests coming. It was like, oh, I've got guests coming tonight. Let me make jelly. <laughs> Let me try this for the first time ever. He's <laughs> right? like, that's what you learned from Martha Stewart is you don't ever try it out on guests the first time, right? And then we'll just and like cook a full meal and let that that heat harden it on the stove. Oh, that sure. sounds great. <laughs> and then let the help fix it, right? So the difference here is that rather than a being a seasoned housekeeper who would just roll their eyes and go, Ugh, this is just one of the foibles of the person I work for, Erna really took this personally. She saw it as like a real prod, a real poke at her own personal abilities as a nanny and a basically a housekeeper. Erna herself, what she came from was a family where she was a child of a fastidious German and English immigrants, and they were very obsessed with cleanliness in their home. So she spent a lot of time trying to get those berry stains out. I can just see it's like this teenage Lady Macbeth in a yeah. way, just trying to get that spot out. So finally, she's finishing her chores. She's leaving the kitchen gleaming by all reports. At this point, she makes her way to bed. She's so exhausted that she just falls asleep on top of the bed, fully clothed with the lights on with a magazine open next to her. She later reported that the light woke her at 2.30 a.m. and then she couldn't get back to sleep. By that time, baby Thais gently began murmuring as children often do as they're slowly waking up. And by 5 a.m., she was wailing. Erna, now facing the day with little to no rest, forced herself up, got both of the children ready for the day. So there was some insight occurring within Erna at this point. She was facing the reality that she is not cut out for this level of daily stress as a teenager. So she made the decision to quit. So this, I think this sounds reasonable up to this point, okay? She's like, maybe this is not a good fit for me and maybe I shouldn't be working here anymore. Absolutely, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, how the turn that this now takes leads us to, with so many of these cases, have to fill in the gaps of like what was really going on underneath the surface and maybe what she was struggling with aside from just being a teenager and taking on this job. So one of the things that makes this particular case so fascinating is that even through the dilated lens of this hundred years ago gap, we actually have a moment by moment account from Erna's hand of what happened on the day that she ended up acting out in violence. 
So in a handwritten letter to the newspapers from her jail cell, Erna provided a detailed timeline of not only her cruel murder of a child, but also what came before that, her emotional reactions to the pressures of the new job the struggle and communication with her employer and the stress of handling the children. Her writing style, while containing some grammatical and spelling errors, shows a competent author who's adept at expressing herself. And here's an excerpt. It was not until Sunday evening, June 24th, that I frankly told myself that I was growing dissatisfied with my work. Dr. Lillian Krantz Sr. and his wife were over to dinner that night. And as is often the case when there are guests, The meal was delayed to a late hour. It was fully 8.30 before the table was entirely deserted. I emitted a sigh as I regarded the endless stacks of dirty dishes and greasy pots and pans. The entire day had been a strenuous one, beginning with the baby's cries to be dressed at 5 o'clock a.m. to the prodigious task awaiting me. So Erna then goes on to describe cutting her finger and then the delay that cutting her finger and addressing it with a bandage caused in the cleaning. So then again, like we were saying before, after finishing the cleaning, she returns to her room, she gets a couple of hours sleep, and then the day starts again. She writes further in her journal, little TT, Thais Diane, was as regular as the clock in her awakening. By 5 a.m. she was cooing, by 5.30 she was crying, and by 5.45 I was dressing her. Pretty little puss, who could resist her smiles? Whatever resentment I I might have held toward that early bird as I dragged my sleepy person down the stairs was dissolved immediately as I responded to her little outstretched arms. The assurance that my baby loved me was heartening. Francora awakened next. Attentive to both, I soon had them in the kitchen dressed, washed, and ready for their breakfast. All was peace and harmony until Mrs. Lillian Krantz presented herself in the kitchen. I am not saying that my good lady was the instigator of trouble. It just happened that Francora grew peevish and refused to go out and play. It's just interesting to think like, you know, these were written after the fact is kind of a timeline of what had happened. So what narrative is she spinning that, you know, it almost sounds what's her what's her perception of the events, right? What's she's, her perception? She's kind of, yeah, she's showing a little bit of insight into how frustrated she is, but she's also really presenting herself as like somebody that's very hardworking and, and loving. not being understood. Yeah, yeah, loving calling the baby my baby. And then it's like you get this idea as soon as the mom walks in, like everything changes. So although Erna had made The decision to quit already, she reports in the timeline that she was committed to the care of the children throughout that day that she was going to quit. A day that included several child tantrums, the soiling of just cleaned laundry, and making a mess of their midday meal. So it was not an easy last day (laughs) that she had had gone through with them. And the children's mother presented mid-afternoon for engagement with her family. That's how I feel when I come home from work. I present to engage with my family. (laughs) I'm ready to engage with my children. (laughs) But of course, that came with offering a few criticisms to Erna's work, particularly implying that the children always seemed irritated with Erna. And the day continued, but left Erna in a foul mood that continued through her waking the next day. Yet she prolonged her resignation a little bit longer. So maybe there's some buildup. Yeah. And good point. I mean, following up from what you spoke about earlier is that here's the mom coming forward. Is the mom really being outlandish in her criticisms or is she just saying, hey, you need to take care of this, this, and this. Yeah. I mean, were the expectations fully outlined when she started the job? We're not going to know. We do know that resignation is building though. Yeah, for sure. So the next day tensions were high between employer and employee. Mrs. Lillian Kranz made a sarcastic comment about Erna's personal assessment of her abilities, which then led to a discussion about who the children liked more. And then Erna perceived more bitterness from her employer. And this was all that was needed to kind of move Erna into her decision to find pull the plug on her appointment. So after feeding the children their early evening meal, she told Mrs. Lillian Krantz that she was resigning and asked for her final wages. Mrs. Lillian Krantz retorted, if you were to pay for all the things you've broken, I don't believe you'd have a cent coming to you. So this insult appears to have been the final straw for Erna. Something shifted in her that would prove to be fatal to the youngest member of the family. So Mr. and Mrs. Lillian Krantz had a standing social plan for the evening and Erna described her employer's affect warming to her somewhat as she stated, well, you will be sweet to my babies anyway, won't you, Erna? I know you always are. 
Erna reassured her with a reply of, oh, yes. So after playing with the two little girls, Erna finished her meal and cleaned up the kitchen, describing a series of violent thoughts and images that sprang up in her mind. Within moments, she was at little Thais's bedside, basically writing the child a farewell poem. Mrs. Lillian Krantz's mother appeared unexpectedly at the door of the home to do a basically a welfare check, likely at the direction of her daughter. And this caused Erna to quickly hide her note. After making a leisurely check through the house, Mrs. L's mother departed, leaving Erna to finish her farewell poem, wearing what she herself described as a sardonic grin. On completion of the poem, Erna impulsively returned to the kitchen and then undid all of her previous cleaning efforts, throwing food around the room, upturning furniture, and only stopping at further breaking dishes that her employer had earlier accused her of. In her writings, Erna described her crime. I soon returned to the bedroom regarding the sleepy children again, stifled a mad variety of thoughts, then chose for my victim the one I loved. More dramatic, I said to myself. I laughed as the scripture came to me. Two shall be sleeping in a bed. One shall be taken and the other left. Little TT blinked at the light as I carried her gently upstairs. I marveled at my own adeptness as I quickly pulled the towel about her throat. One moment she looked into my eyes and cried, and another moment she was unconscious. I continued to pull even after she had ceased to writhe to make certain that she was dead. Still a little doubtful, I slipped a bathing cap over her face and head. With all air excluded, I reasoned it would be impossible for her to live long. I looked closely to see if she was heaving. Once I imagined that I discerned a little twitch of the hand. It was for the first time that I grew a tiny bit nervous. Recklessly, I pulled the towel tighter and tighter and then slipped the body between the mattresses. After kneeling on top five or 10 minutes, I left the room. Within 15 minutes, I returned to give the body a final inspection before I phoned the police. There were no doubts now. Only a lifeless mass remained. I phoned to the city hall immediately. And as I waited the officers in the living room, I took out the little death poem again. At first, I had planned to pin it on the baby, but an afterthought prompted me to keep it in my own possession. So I folded the sheet into as small a bulk as possible, and I slipped it at the back of my cheek where the jail matrons would never think to look. Thus, serenely, I folded my hands and waited for fate to take its course. Signed, Erna Janoshek. Wow. Yeah, so uh, we always make the statement that nobody snaps, but isn't this interesting because it certainly does seem like she just snapped. But again, her self-report on her role in all of this and her her sense of responsibility, her sense of entitlement, her sense of, you know, personal injustice mm-hmm. is all framed through the lens of someone who's had yeah. some problems, right? Yeah. I mean, this certainly is an expression of revenge. You know, I think the of all of the stressors that were happening and obviously not to excuse anything she did. This is just a horrific way to go about dealing with her perceived injustices and grievances with this family. It's like that those last interactions were really important. You know, even the the sappiness of the mom saying, you're going to take care of my babies, right? And it's like, she said, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm going to take care of them, you know? Yeah, it certainly seems like that. Throwing the furniture and the food around the house, like just everything. It it just, like the child was one other object to make a mess of almost. And the idea that she pointedly said, I'll take the one that I love the most. I'm going to kill the one that I care about the most. Very, very telling there. Yeah. That's pretty Freudian. Yeah. Erna was taken into custody by the police at the scene and almost immediately placed right in an interrogation room. Surprisingly to everyone involved, she displayed no resistance or denial of any of her actions, but instead she giggled and laughed while answering their questions. She even boasted about her indifference towards the murder and expressed a preference for dealing with the police rather than Mrs. Lillian Krantz. And Inspector Brody Wallman admonished Erna for her inappropriate behavior, emphasizing the seriousness of the situation. Erna, however, claimed that the laughter was her way of coping with distress. Hmm. It's bizarrely insightful, right? This is my maladaptive behavior for dealing right. with stress. Like, oh, I think something else you've done is doing the heavy lifting here. But yeah, that's <laughs> right. just me. Right. So the following day, Erna faced arraignment in front of Judge Leon Gray, who decided to detain her in juvenile hall for a preliminary psychiatric evaluation. And despite maintaining her sanity, Erna was evaluated by psychiatrists who concurred that she possessed an eccentric personality, but she still understood the difference between right and wrong, as well as 
the gravity of her actions and their consequences. Yeah. So even to this day, when you're investigating a minor for a crime, I don't know if it's nationwide, but at least here in California, you have a form that you have to fill out with them. It's called the Gladys R form. And it's basically getting a child to articulate that they know right from wrong. And you kind of book that into the paperwork. It is the front part of your interrogation. So it sounds like obviously these psychiatrists were evaluating specifically for that, but it's just an interesting nod to how we still do it today. So the trial for Erna's murder case commenced on September 17th in Oakland, because they were actually from the Bay Area by this time, with Judge Fred Wood presiding over the proceedings. Public defender William Shea represented Erna and believed it was in her best interest to plead insanity. However, she was adamantly opposed to the strategy and firmly refused to claim insanity. Erna found the concept of insanity distasteful, according to the Santa Cruz Evening Newspaper, and further asserted that she was, quote, fully aware of her actions when she killed baby Thais. But due to her status as a minor, her attorney pursued the insanity defense on her behalf. The judge, the defense, and the prosecution all recognized the need to safeguard Erna's interests while also serving justice for the murder of Thais Diana. District Attorney Earl Warren enlisted the services of psychiatrist Dr. O.D. Hamlin to assess Erna's mental state. And on the defense side, Shea hired a separate team of psychiatrists to evaluate Erna's condition as the trial went underway. So... Just following up on what you said, it's really integral to this story for our listeners to understand that the insanity defense was really a relatively new concept in 1928 in California. And it presented a whole new set of ethical dilemmas within the courtroom that are going to require a lot more planning by Ernest defense for adjudication. And then regardless of what happens as a result of that adjudication, where she's going to be placed, if she was deemed insane, that means that she would have been confined to a state hospital and eventually released at that time. Those laws have since changed. And there are people that can serve their entire lives in psychiatric facilities way beyond their criminal term. That's yeah. that's something that has developed in, in later years. If she was deemed insane, she would have been confined in that state hospital, but eventually released. But on the other hand, if she were found sane, she as a 17-year-old schoolgirl could face a life sentence or even the death penalty. So going on to bolster Erna's defense, her mother and sister testified on her behalf, describing her depression and her sullen demeanor, while they both admitted to their inability to manage her behavior. So now we've got information coming forward that this was more than just teenage angst. There was mm. something going on with Erna that they had been trying to deal with for quite some time. And unfortunately, Erna's father, Edward, did not even bother to attend the trial. And then throughout Erna's mother's emotional testimony, Erna herself remained somewhat indifferent, continuing to giggle and just shrug her shoulders at the comments that came. And one of the defense psychiatrists, Dr. Richards, seized on the opportunity of Erna's trial to advocate for mental health reform. Amazing. I mean, at that time, individuals diagnosed with insanity were committed to psychiatric hospitals, but this often happened after they posed a danger to themselves or to others. Dr. Richards suggested to the court and reporters that early detection of symptoms such as Erna's throughout outpatient facilities and in conjunction with psychotherapy could potentially prevent such tragic incidents. Who is this Dr. Richards? I need right? to read more about him. <laughs> what a forward thinker. Jeez. Absolutely. Just out there. I could see him in front of those old timey reporters, you know. If we had got on the front end of this, maybe, you know, conversations we're still having today. So. I, but it would have been mind blowing, I think. That's so progressive. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I know. So when it was Erna's turn to testify, she continued to treat the courtroom as her stage. She playfully addressed the judge about her new hat, flirted with the jury by batting her blue eyes, and on occasions burst into laughter. Again, we're, head we're heading back into territory from Burma, the blonde rattlesnake last yeah. month. They did time together. So, but again, like, hmm. It was like this nervous giggling. And then now newspapers are saying she was bursting into laughter. We remember, like, we don't know what's going on here, really. But despite her theatrics, Erna recounted the crime without displaying any emotional connection except for the occasional fits of giggles. When questioned about her motives for killing the baby, she easily and openly asserted that the crime was an act of revenge against Mrs. Lillian Krantz. So 
you know, there, there's a lot of psychology going on here that I think you and I can hypothesize about looking sort of backwards, but it was believed at the time at a bare minimum that Erna was exhibiting delusions of grandeur, possibly influenced by a really interesting fun fact here. She was a distant relative to a Czech-born American actress, stage actress named Fanny Janoshek, who was really very famous here in America, even though she was from Czechoslovakia at the time. And Erna kind of had this belief that she was destined for fame and stardom as well, drawing a significant contrast between her current social situations, especially when compared to Mrs. Lillian Krantz, who really orbited and enjoyed a vibrant social solar system, if you will. And the Lillian Krantz's inhabited financial and social circles that Erna would never be accepted in, you know, so there, there starts to have this idea of kind of a fantasy life of what maybe she projected for herself. And perhaps did that kind of feed into maybe some delusional thinking that just underlied all of this other stuff that we're talking about. So alienists or mental health professionals at the time surmised that Erna's distorted perception of her capabilities, her misperception of her employer's criticisms, combined with a deep-seated feeling of inferiority, likely contributed to Erna's choice of the baby as her victim. So possibly because the child represented Mrs. Lillian Krantz's affection, that's why she chose the baby. So I think that's interesting. I mean, it is very like Freudian. And at the time, it sounds very alienist speak <laughs> of these, you know, distorted perceptions and the criticisms and the inferiority issues going on. There's also the possibility just kind of plain and simple that Erna may have targeted little Thais due to the fact that she is younger, vulnerable, a smaller victim to overpower. When we go back to power bases and different types of crimes, Sometimes it's just a simple logistics matter to look at there. So Erna said to Judge Butler, maybe I am insane. I don't feel any horror. Something must be wrong, of course, but I feel more like laughing than shuddering when I think of it. It's fascinating, really. Some of these vintage cases are so surprising mm -hmm. in what comes through. You know, we have Erna's self-report. We have the newspaper's perception of her behaviors in the courtroom. And then we actually have trial transcripts. And that yeah. is very, very telling that particular quote that you just shared, but it is really fascinating to look at it. Let's go back to her family of origin and her dad was extremely religious. Mm -hmm. And this is no, this is no criticism on people with strong, strong adherence to whatever faith system they belong to. However, if your faith is so strong that you neglect your family and you basically just up and leave them because you're called by God, I, as a clinician, think that that's notable. And I'm going to say, sure. well, there's certainly going to be some abandonment issues that are as a result of that. That's just family systems. There's no way to avoid mm -hmm. that. But there's also like an, a level of eccentricity in her father himself, that sounds like maybe there's a genetic predisposition towards probably like, I would say almost prodromal symptoms of psychosis, you know, just these delusions yeah. of grandeur and this, you know, it's interesting that the break for women can generally happen several years later than it does for men. But in the same way that we look at these triggering events for people who move into full-blown psychotic episodes, going into this high level of adult responsibility could mm -hmm. have been the thing that actually did push her over the edge because she had a predisposition to it. But ultimately, all the psychiatrists hired on this case determined that she was mentally sound and that she was able to understand the proceedings. So the jury found her guilty of first-degree murder, and they sentenced her to life in prison. Yes. So Erna found herself confined to California State Prison at San Quentin for an extended period of time at first. And believing herself to be quite the star of her cell block, she engaged in activities that spoke to both her lack of insight into the danger she created for herself, as well as a lack of emotional connection to the world around her. And Erna confronted fellow inmates with whom she considered inferior. And instead of addressing them by their names, Erna adopted a condescending attitude accompanied by her well-known smirk by this time and referred to them by the crimes that they had committed. So for instance, she would call someone Mrs. Petty Thief or Mrs. Grand Larceny. Wow. I'm sure that went over well. I'm sure. <laughs> Jeez. Ooh. 
who is this 17 year old brat (laughs) coming in here? So she was quoted as saying, I don't care to associate with the other girls. I don't consider them to be of my caliber. The idea of a mere drunk and disorderly assuming equality with a real murderess. So that was quoted in the Oakland Tribune, August 16th, 1928. Wow. It sounds like a total defense mechanism to me. Like, just sort of like the younger sibling on steroids phenomenon of like just having to bully back as much as possible for self-preservation. I don't know, but it's something. I don't know if it's bravery. I think it's just a defense mechanism for her at that point. Well, she's clearly also exhibiting some impulsivity, you know, right? So not really considering long-term action, certainly in the commission of this crime, she didn't think about long-term consequences. Although she committed the crime, she messed up the kitchen and then called the police. Yeah. yeah. So that is a, that's an interesting series of events that took place in her head and led her to that. Yeah, definitely. The other prisoners regarded her with a mixture of disgust and sorrow, recognizing her as basically a young woman who was emotionally little more than a child, a child who had cold-bloodedly taken the life of a helpless baby. Yes. But it sounds like they were able to kind of see her for what she was. Right. And in response to this perception, Erna complained to the matron (laughs) claiming that the other women were treating her with disdain. So here she would be this over the top kind of little bully and then be sad and go be a tattletale on them. Yeah. Well, her outbursts and inconsistent behaviors were not just limited to conflicts with the other inmates. Vandalized the prison facility by breaking windows, pulling down the prison Christmas tree, and even physically attacking the unfortunate prison matron. That's a bad decision to make to actually attack custody. On one occasion, she went so far as to set a bed on fire, another big, huge red flag. Big, huge red flag is setting fires. Mm -hmm. When the matron refused to tolerate her behavior and knowing that lashing out at other inmates could result in even worse consequences, Erna then shifted and directed her violence toward herself, engaging in multiple suicide attempts by cutting her wrists at least two times, according to prison records. And what a spiral down. I mean, this is, she's really in pain in a lot of ways is what I'm feeling through this. After long observation evaluation of Erna, prison psychiatrist, Dr. Stanley and prison physician, Dr. Hewitt arrived at a diagnosis of dementia precox or what we now call schizophrenia. Dr. Stanley testified before Judge Edward Butler, describing Erna as displaying unstable mood states with severe episodes of depression and irritability. He also described her continuing dangerous behaviors, including homicidal threats and an emerging affinity for arson. The judge was not in a position to reverse his decision, but he did have the option to transfer her to a state hospital at Mendocino. For some reason, this statement by the judge was the point that Erna's laughter finally stopped. So with what was described as a somewhat fatherly tone, the judge suggested to Erna, wouldn't you prefer the possibility of being cured at a hospital? In response, she shrugged and flatly said, I no longer care about what will become of me. Mm. It's very interesting. I think that I'm just getting this impression that the depth and breadth of her education was really significant. She's a good writer. You know, she's also the daughter of immigrant parents while her mom was English, her dad was German. So it kind of makes sense that she has a little bit of a different syntax and grammar going on, but clearly she's educated and well-spoken in the way that, that an educated young woman would be at that time. But then the onset of whatever this is, whether it actually was schizophrenia or it was, I, I mean, I can't even get away from maybe she had an agitated major depressive disorder Mm-hmm. And so depressive that she it sort of emerged into these psychotic episodes. Sure, but sure. we're not going to know. I mean, it's really hard to make those kind of things. We don't know. Also, you know, thinking about the blonde rattlesnake, did she ever have a history of any kind of medical issue? Did she have a history of a head injury? Sure. There are so many things that could have been part of this. But she is transferred to Mendocino and with a great deal of convincing by the psychiatric staff, she agreed in 1929 to undergo a surgical procedure that might quote unquote cure her. And records from this time are clear and we're not able to determine if she was given something like an early form of lobotomy before that became unfortunately popular or some other form of psychosurgery. 
I'm just not sure what was yeah. done. But following this operation, Erna's name ceased to appear in the newspapers, except when parole considerations arose or when San Quentin lost its status as a co-ed prison, which resulted in all the female inmates being relocated to a new women's prison in Tehachapi, California. Yeah, so Tehachapi is where she was housed with the other murderesses from Los Angeles. So Burma White, Mrs. Pete, Clara Phillips. All people um, that we've covered on the show. Yeah, yeah. as you know, we know, Burma was doing everyone's hair. Yeah. It, we, it's we, just we... wild to think of them all together, these like really famous cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so having spent several months recovering at the hospital, Erna returned to San Quentin before the shutdown. She appeared to gradually begin to accept the reality of sentence and prison life. And at this point, she returned to her previous creative aspirations and she reimagined herself now as a writer, focusing on poetry. She actually found some success and she gained some recognition within the prison as the prison poet. Oh no, not more poetry. Mm. (laughs) Erna struck up a correspondence with her estranged father through letters, sharing her aspirations to become an accomplished writer beyond the confines of prison. And Edward was reported to have then arrived in Oakland. He purchased a typewriter and arranged for it to be sent to his daughter in prison. So Erna's first parole hearing in 1935 was unsuccessful with the directive that she was required to serve a minimum of 10 years of her term before she would even be considered for parole. She was again refused in 1937, but she was finally granted freedom in December of 1953 through a commutation. So it's really significant to note that the judge that provided the commutation is a big deal in California history. Judge Earl Warren from Ernest trial is the judge that went on to become chairman of the Warren commission Mm -hmm. and is known to this day as a staunch civil rights activist and an early pioneer of prison reform. Judge Earl Warren later became governor of California in 1943, and he then commuted her sentence a decade later. Surprisingly, given the nature of the crime, the notoriety and the clear challenges within Erna's own psychological makeup, she did manage to create a new life for herself on release. She is reported to have married, changed her name, and then melted into a quiet life of anonymity in Northern California until her death in 2007. That's not so wild. long ago. Yeah. That is like the year before you and I met. It's so crazy to think that she was yeah. just living quietly until then. Wow. Yeah, I, I think this is a, an interesting time in California and Los Angeles in terms of kind of what we now know as forensic psychology or that sweet spot where psychology and psychiatry overlap with the criminal justice system. Because just in this time period we're talking about, you know, a few years, you have high profile, very violent crimes being perpetrated by younger offenders and mental health professionals being asked to step in and get involved to help explain what's going on here because the legal system and the public is like, what? is happening. I actually found a newspaper article from 1928 that kind of lays out the offenses that happened, but also sort of profiles on three subjects and, you know, a couple that we've covered. So they talk about Erna and her case. They talk about Edward Hickman, who murdered little Marion Parker that we covered. And then Dorothy Ellingson, who murdered her mother. She was also from the Bay Area. So this was you know, again, timely and also close in proximity. And she had murdered her mother basically because she wouldn't let her go out to jazz clubs anymore. So it was, it was this idea of like, what's going on with these young people, these youths that they are turning to these horrible offenses just because of very small circumstances that seem bothersome to them, right? Like you have a nasty employer or you want to fund a movie career like Edward Hickman was going to do this ransom job to do that or your mom not letting you go out to jazz clubs. So in this article, they quote a criminologist professor from one of the UC schools at the time who opined that, quote, examples of emotional instabilities growing out of suppressed desires during rapid adolescence, trying their best to wrap their heads around what probably felt like a steep rise in violent crime. So again, like no one has a great clear answer and it's three examples. It's not as if this was a complete epidemic because- There are other horrific crimes happening, but we have a big variety of types of offenders, age, gender, ways in which they committed their crimes. But it was sexier to focus on women, 
right? It's, I oh, mean, it, it really is. It's just at that time, it's it's what the whole musical Chicago is about. We have our yeah. own basically group of of women who are incarcerated at that time in California that are the same characters that you would see in that musical. Yeah. It just seems like a time that psychology is starting to be asked to poke their head in to see what's going on here. It's interesting. So I did want to touch a little bit more on the referral to psychosurgery. So psychosurgery before the horrible, horrible onslaught and, and commonality of the lobotomy that became just known throughout the the US on a basically on a traveling show developed by Walter Freeman and neurosurgeon James Watts prior to their lobotomy which is a brutal brutal procedure very primitive there were attempts all around the world to engage in types of psychosurgery that targeted what was then a very limited understanding of brain function so instead of just basically an ice pick through the orbital lobe or through the nose and just like blending the frontal cortex. This was stuff that was more subtle to the extent that it could. There were also other forms that were really brutal in the psychiatric hospitals at the time. They would induce diabetic comas in people, you know, always with this idea. This is very weird that it was the idea that they're trying to reset the limbic system, reset the brain, reset the body, which is very interesting because now we have 70 years later, if someone has a chronic form of tachycardia, like a heart murmur, and it can't be addressed by sort of regular ongoing medications, we have this ability to induce with medication, resetting the heart. It's like a person is taken to the the emergency room. The doctors aren't really worried about it. They go, hey, I know this is going to sound weird, but we're going to give this medication and it's going to stop your heart for about 30 seconds and it's going to start again. You're going to be fine, which is absolutely terrifying to the layperson, right? But it's an accepted treatment. Yeah. So- or in and an emergency, you can just use a defibrillator. Just right. And now right we, have, we have Parkinson's treatments that use implants with electrodes. We have all sorts of things that are developing, coming from a really, really dark place in American history. Mm-hmm. And we'll never know what the results of that psychosurgery was for Erna and if it really did have any effect on her behavior or if she just aged out of the worst of her impulsivity. Was this the combination of being a teenager and the onset of these symptoms and being in a stressful situation with class separation and financial issues. There's all sorts of things that could have been playing a factor. Yeah, it'd be really interesting. And maybe you know this, but to go back and look at the history of psychiatric services within the California prison system, you know, back to that time, would she have been meeting with a therapist one-on-one? Would she have been learning skills while she was in prison, you know, learning how to deal with her stressors, things like that? Well, we should probably put that down as a consideration for a future episode. I yeah. think that's a great idea. Talk therapy was not really, you know, there was a blending back then. The alienists could be medical doctors as well, or they could be non-medical yeah. doctors. But there wasn't the big separation that there is now between levels of clinicians and sort of um, domains. But definitely we'll consider that for the future. I thought this was like a fantastic, fantastic and fascinating subject. I'm so glad that we found this particular one. It's just incredibly sad. Um, There were so many other things that happened as well. There was this very famous thing that happened at San Quentin when it was a co-ed prison that was called the San Quentin Follies. And apparently Erna did a dramatic reading of one of her poems and some (laughs) of the other show. (laughs) Yeah, it was a talent show basically that happened every year and only got discontinued when the San Quentin was shut down for women. Wow. So yeah. Interesting mm, stuff. It is. It really is. I, I feel horrified and sad for her and we just won't know really what was going on for her. And it's it's a way to illuminate how far we've come. You know, some of the hypotheses that were thrown out there by the doctors that had evaluated her. You know, I did like to hear, I think, how in tune the attorneys and the judge and just the whole court seem to be with like, this is a child. We need to make sure that we are preserving her rights, despite the fact that she's done something horrific and give all considerations to this. So that, that was nice rather than just kind of the typical, let's make her the scapegoat and lock her up and throw away the key sort of thing we've seen in others. So unfortunately her crime, however, was just the beginning of, a lot of challenges for the Lillian Kranz family. 
Little Thais's father died several years later in a plane accident. And there were other challenges then just carrying on with their lives of the Mm, surviving sister, Francora, and her mother. Although Francora went on to be a very highly respected elementary school teacher in the state of California. And she herself lived a very long time and only passed away, I think, in the last 15 years. Wow. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Yes. Well, thanks. This was this was a good one. We will see what we have in store for next month for your vintage episode. And please, if you guys have California or Los Angeles centric vintage cases, send them our way. Like you were saying at the beginning, we've got several interviews that will be coming out. We'll post yeah. those on social media, hooking up with some of the wonderful, wonderful content creators that we met in London at mm-hmm. CrimeCon UK. We're also finally reconnecting with Tim and Lance, our two (laughs) errant children, our (laughs) wild children at Crawl Space Media. Can't wait for that one to come out. And we've got a couple of other things coming up, including planning on another live event for either late fall or early 2024 here in Southern California. We want to give you guys enough time to... See if you can make your way down here and join us. Yeah, for sure. All right, everyone. Well, everyone, thanks so much for joining us. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.